Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Bird. Tonight, her debut book, a memoir called The Glass Castle, sold six million copies and spent more than five years on the New York Times bestseller list. It was turned into a movie in 2017. And now author Jeanette Walls is back with a new book called Hang the Moon, set in Virginia during Prohibition. It is the story of Sally Kincaid, the rebellious daughter of the richest man in town, and how she navigates the factions of her family and the divides in her community during Prohibition and comes into her own as a bold bootlegger. Binance is the largest cryptocurrency exchange in the world. It was founded and is still run by a Canadian CEO, Changpeng Zhao. Well, today the company announced it's bidding farewell to Canada. Not a big surprise, experts say, but we find out what kind of impact it could have in this country. But first, we head to Alberta to find out why government funding cuts may have left fire prevention and firefighters underprepared for what has already been a very tough fire season, and it's only mid-May. And smoke from those Alberta wildfires has spread right across Canada and into the U.S. A reminder that wildfire smoke has become a serious health concern in this country, especially in the West, as the fire season becomes longer and more intense. Well, first up, we will head to Alberta. Um, I know a lot of folks in Edmonton will be getting ready for the game, but lots of eyes on those wildfires as well. 74 active ones still burning tonight, 21 of them about considered out of control. More than 16,000 people remain displaced and don't expect to be able to return anytime soon. Um, and it's not just the fires that are causing issues, but the smoke as well. Case in point this morning on a highway near Edmonton where heavy smoke played a big role in a massive multi-car collision consisting of 34 vehicles. Here's Global Edmonton Stacy Woodward from the Global One helicopter this morning. Yeah, that's right, Vinesh. Now that the smoke and uh, fog have cleared out quite the extensive damage here across Highway 14 in the westbound lanes, uh, just west of the Highway 21 overpass, up to 15 vehicles involved with this one that has completely shut down both east and westbound across Highway 14 off just off of Highway 21. Yeah, I, I, listen, we know the impact that smoke can have in the immediate vicinity of a wildfire, but it's also felt far and wide. I know that wildfire smoke has a way of traveling thousands of kilometers, and it did so this week. On Thursday, there were reports of wildfire smoke uh, as from the Northwest Territories all the way to the East Coast here in Canada. Um, again, you know, this year there's been some really aggressive wildfires. 880,000 hectares of Alberta has burned. There have been more than 100 fires across Alberta and B.C. already. It's still early right in May, although that is typically a, a pretty bad wildfire time in uh, parts of Alberta and B.C. as well. And what it's meant is that wildfire smoke has become an air quality issue for this country, specifically uh, on the West Coast or in the Western provinces. Uh, but just about everywhere, but, you know, really out here. And uh, because wildfire season is becoming longer due to war warming climate, it's also more intense. So there's a lot more smoke and a lot more particulate matter that gets released into the air. So what does that mean for all of us? Is it going to get worse? Michael Mehta is a professor uh, at the Department of Environment, Culture and Society at Thompson Rivers University in the interior of BC. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for your time tonight. Good to be here, Ben. Yeah, this has really been an early reminder. I mean, I know the Fort McMurray wildfire was, you know, this time, same time of year back in 2016. So it's not shocking that it's this early in the year, but a real reminder about just what wildfire smoke can do and how early and how long these seasons are now. 
Yeah, it's a long-term kind of issue. There, there's no doubt that more than 90% of the world's population now is living with air pollution that exceeds what are called safe standards. So uh, with these wildfires becoming more, uh, more frequent, more intense, uh, this is becoming a bigger health concern for a lot of people. And we're seeing, um, there was a big uh, article in the Globe and Mail today, just looking at how wildfire smoke has actually sort of reversed some of the gains that Western provinces were making, at least in terms of clean air. Our air has been been getting cleaner over time. Uh, and this is having an impact on that. Absolutely. You know, with uh, the amount of smoke that's being emitted, uh, we're not only seeing things like annual average exposures increase dramatically, but you're, you're right. A lot of the initiatives to clean up exo- you know, exhaust emissions from tailpipes, industrial emissions are being sort of wiped out by all of these sorts of gains that are increases from, from wildfire smoke. So it is a, a serious issue for sure. Just uh, for a reminder, what exactly is in it? Um, because I think we, we know one thing about wildfire smoke. I mean, I'm out west, so you can tell. You wake up one morning and the sky is a bit orange or, and, and there's a smell in the air, right? You can smell it. Uh, but how do you know what, I mean, you don't, what's in it and when do you know if it's bad or not? Yeah, so it, it's fairly consistent, although there's a lot, some variability depending on what's burning. Uh, you know, for example, if it's if it's forest versus forest versus structure, it's 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 different. Right. But there are more than 200 different chemicals that we know of in wildfire that are carcinogenic and toxic. Many of them are the same as uh, the chemicals that you'd find in tobacco or or diesel. Believe it or not, uh, a lot of formaldehyde, ben, benzene-like compounds, PAHs, a lot of heavy metals. Uh, things like that that are they're very inflammatory to the body. What kind of uh, what kind of damage can it do? Because I know for for instance, when it gets really bad out here in the west, and it has been, you know, in BC over, um, you know, I'm I'm in Victoria, so I'm out on the coast. But um, there, there have been times where they literally warn people to stay, people who are vulnerable, not to go outside. Yeah, you know, the interesting thing is that we're all vulnerable to a certain extent. There's this. Obviously, there are right. people that are more at risk, uh, elderly and, and very young, and, and also women who are pregnant. But over time, because this is a, a sort of a long-term sort of thing, the, the impacts are cumulative. They build up. So uh, you know, we really need to protect ourselves. And uh, one of the things that I, I tell a lot of people is that, uh, you know, like, although these events may be you know, spread out over a few weeks or months from here, you know, from year to year, uh, we are increasingly being exposed to a lot of different kinds of air pollutants. So we have to practice really good respiratory health throughout the year in order to minimize these risks. Yeah, I, just, and, it, and, it's, and it, it's quite dependent too, right? Because there are times where, where wildfires will burn not too far from here, where I am, or perhaps where other people are, obviously, and you won't, you won't sense a thing. And other times it really, I mean, it's all about the winds. For instance, these, uh, these latest Alberta fires, that smoke was, was spread far and wide fairly quickly. Yeah, that's true. You can actually see it. There's uh, lots of amazing web apps. Uh, one of the sites I use is called firesmoke.ca, where you can actually yeah, see the distribution in real real time. And you can also see it spreading across uh, various uh, networks of air quality sensors, like Purple Air, which is another uh, really robust network around the world. So definitely uh, it varies. and It can vary quite a bit even uh, in a city. I live in Kamloops. And with the terrain, the elevations, the changes that we have in this city, you can actually have air quality that's significantly worse at different locations like lower elevations near the river than perhaps at higher elevations up towards the mountains. So it is highly variable. Something I guess each and every one of us should be cognizant of, specifically we live in, in, on, on the, western part, in the western part of the country where this seems to be more prevalent, but cognizant of what the risk is in your neighborhood depending on how the wind's blowing. 
Absolutely. Not only the winds, but atmospheric pressure and other kinds of phenomena right. can trap air pollution, especially if you're in a, a bowl of sorts. And a lot of different kinds of communities have these sort of effects, these inversion type effects that keep that air pollution down. And it, uh, and, and that's that's pro- one of the problems with the uh, changes to the jet stream in particular as a result of climate change. We're seeing that once you've got air pollution locked in to an area, it stays locked in sometimes for weeks, even after the fires are out. So we, we have to be really aware of this. And I think the, the biggest challenge for a lot of us is that uh, if we, we don't see it, we assume that we're safe. But that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. Our eyes are, are not necessarily or our nose a very good receptor for these sorts of things. Uh, you do have to look at the sensors and you have to look at the actual readings. Because we do rely a lot, I think, when it comes to wildfire smoke, we rely a lot on our eyes and certainly our nose. Like once you stop smelling it, you don't see it. You tend to think it's gone. Exactly, and and that's where the risk can be greatest for a lot of people. Because you know, if you've been pent up at home, for example, for weeks like we were in 2017 here in BC with the wildfires, as soon as it all mm-hmm. sort of seems to clear, you're out running and doing everything else. But there's still a lot of lingering particulates and gases. That can be quite damaging. It, it's it's a horrible thing. Like I, I really feel sorry for the people in uh, northern Alberta and northeastern parts of BC right now. They're they're going through something that uh, they have in the past, but it's uh, certainly uh, probably going to be uh, worse in some respects because you know with the coming heat wave that we've got this weekend and going forward, this is just the beginning. Yeah, I mean, I lived in Beijing for a while, and of course, the air there was toxic, right? We knew, I mean, it was off the charts toxic, and you never thought that you would encounter that sort of thing here because it was there was a whole myriad of factors that that led to that. But here, really, wildfire smoke can turn the most pristine place, air quality wise, into something quite awful pretty fast. And I was I was shocked to see. I think Vancouver back was it 2017 that it was, uh, that the, the, some BC cities were, were were up there amongst the most polluted in the world. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Vancouver and all, all the interior were three to four times what would have been a red alert day in Beijing. And, uh, right. you know, and <laughs> so that's pretty extreme. Actually, we haven't really measured these kind of levels very many places on the planet, especially on such a wide scale basis. So we're really in some unprecedented territory now. Uh, a lot of our public health agencies and physicians and others are scrambling to understand and interpret and explain all of this. To be quite frank, they're, they're really behind in their understanding of it. And uh, they're often giving messages of reassurance when they should be telling people to be careful to wear masks like HEPA and have HEPA filtration in their homes to, to not go out for a run with their kids, to close their windows. You know, we really have to be proactive on these things. Michael, you talked about it a bit earlier about how public health officials are sort of scrambling to figure out what the long-term effects of this could be and just what we should be doing to protect ourselves because, of course, summers here are short, right? So people like to be outdoors in the summer, but wildfire smoke has caused some real issues in May, June, July, and beyond in, in parts of this country. Yeah, that's for sure. A lot of people are even rethinking their vacation plans <laughs> to uh, yeah. not be you know, outside as much in the summer. It, it's, it's, a, it's a shame, you know. Um, of clearly you want to be out there and enjoying mother nature and uh, doing things but of course at the same time you have to be careful i know a lot of people over the years because of wildfire smoke who've actually had strokes and other kinds of issues like heart attacks who were otherwise healthy and active who didn't heed the advice and uh, didn't listen carefully enough to this um when when you're exposed to wildfire smoke it's not just your lungs it goes to your heart to your uh kidneys to your brain to all your organ systems and it's it can be incredibly devastating for some people it can be right away and for others it can take years to develop so definitely there are things that we can protect ourselves with 
what are some, I mean, I remember now I'm thinking back to the Beijing advice, you know, don't, don't run outdoors. Don't go, don't go to a gym beside a busy street. There were many, I don't know how many of them were scientifically true, but there were many things we used to share. I guess, I mean, think about masks again, think about better ventilation in your homes, right? All that, all those things that we talked about when it came to the pandemic. Absolutely. And, you know, a good N95 or KN95 respirator mask will make a huge difference if you are outside and you're doing these things. And I think a lot of us have those things because of COVID, of course. Uh, but yeah. uh, HEPA, HEPA filtration is the first line of defense. Most of the time uh, we, we spend in a day is actually indoors. Uh, and if you can if you can prevent that smoke from actually accumulating and building up inside, because a lot of the smoke particles are small enough to go right through your vapor barriers, right through all the seals and cracks of your house. If you can nail it inside with HEPA filtration, it's a massive difference. So I, I really encourage people to do that. In fact, I, I'm so convinced this is the right approach that I think building code needs to now be modified to build, account for this with new builds going forward. Yeah, it feels it feels like it's something. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I moved to uh, to BC in 2015. It feels like something that that we didn't really talk about in 2015. I mean, there were the, there was the big Fort Mac fire the next year, and then there was that terrible summer in in here the year after. It feels like this is something we've only really started worrying about in the past six or seven years. Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with the scale bend because you know in a lot of yeah. those cases the fires were fairly localized. The smoke, although it moved, didn't move to the same extent that it does now. I mean, over 2017, they recorded smoke from BC fires all the way in Europe, and it was moving. <laughs> so um, yeah. definitely a larger scale, longer periods of time. And uh, you know, we know that risk to individuals is a sort of a function of uh, the dose, the amount of smoke that you get, but also the length of time that you're exposed to it. So I think that's the reason why a lot of this is changing. Yeah, I, one one expert call it said wildfire smoke is the air quality issue in Canada now and for the future. That's a big statement. Well, it's actually not that big a statement. It's been that case for probably decades now that air pollution more generally on a global scale is the number one environmental health hazard. I mean, it kills more people than HIV and malaria combined, for example, every year. And now that we have this happening, it's going to be even bigger. I think in the past, we were kind of lucky that, uh, well, lucky, we, were, we kind of thought that most of the deaths from air pollution were in the developing world, India and China and places like that. And we never really sort of recognized that it's come home to us. And that's where the people are starting to wake up. Well, Michael Mehta, uh, thank you so much for your perspective on this tonight. Thank you, Ben. I never seen such a fire in my life. Never. I never seen a fire like that come that quick and fast and go through go through the settlement and burn everything in its sight. Yeah, quite the description there. The devil. Chairman Raymond Superno of the East Prairie Metis Settlement in northern Alberta, that's near Grand Prairie, describing the fire that tore through his community. 14 homes lost, a bridge, 80% of the land, of course, and still concerns because temperatures there are going back up again. There was some, the weather played a bit of a favor with firefighting over the last few days, but it looks like it's going to be a hot and dry weekend as well. As we said in the last half hour, there are 74 active wildfires burning in and around Alberta tonight. 21 of those considered to be out of control. 16,000 people remain displaced. Drayton Valley, of course, one of the largest Alberta communities to be evacuated. This happened last week uh, because of the threat of wildfires this month. They've been told 
to expect to be out of their homes for at least another week. There are 155 firefighters there at this point trying to uh, calm things down. 50 members of the military now have joined them. Uh, Here is Evan Stewart of Clearwater Regional Rescue Fire Services. I have faith that we have the appropriate resources in place to make sure that we come through the weekend uh, with a positive outcome. Uh, however, there is, there is uh, challenges definitely ahead for firefighters working on this fire. It has been a really tough May already for so many firefighters in Alberta. And of course, the spotlight has been on whether the province was prepared for these. Now, we know that the emergency preparedness minister, the federal uh, emergency preparedness minister, Bill Blair, yesterday acknowledged that the situation in Alberta so far this year has been unprecedented in May. Uh, There was a request from the province for Canadian Armed Forces, as I mentioned. That's been uh, accepted. Uh, They'll be providing assistance, joining additional fire crews from BC, Quebec, Ontario, Manitoba, Yukon, uh, but there are accusations that the, that the team's tasked with preventing and fighting wildfires across Alberta were un, underprepared or at least unprepared for this because of cutbacks since 2019. Uh, the Alberta government has gutted Alberta firefighters and response teams, according to critics, and their ability to efficiently respond to and manage wildfires in the province. And part of the result, perhaps, is what we're seeing unfold now. Harold Larson worked as a wildland firefighter and crew leader in Alberta for 14 years. He has 20 years of experience working on more than 300 wildfires in Alberta, BC, and in Australia. He wrote a memoir of leading the first Peace River unit crew. These were small teams, dedicated teams that fought wildfires, including the Peace River more than a decade ago, now called the Wildfire 20. And Harold Larson joins me now. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, no worries. Thank you for having me. I mean, given all your experience, uh, what have you seen since the beginning of May, or at least in the last week? I mean, just the sheer number of fires, you must have thought that's going to be that's going to be a real challenge under any circumstances. Forget how prepared you were. Um, well, that term unprecedented, I've, I've heard it lots of times before. Uh, fires starting at this magnitude is nothing new. So it was pretty dry. You kind of know these things are going to happen a little bit if you have some experience. Um pretty scary my parents live in evansburg they got to, they had to be evacuated it's not the first time that it's happened so it's something that's not really new in the area that being said um i mean just from your experience fighting these fires what are the challenges that they must be facing at this point uh i mean both at a local level but also at a provincial level with so many different fires to to have to attend to uh, having that many fires at one time is definitely overwhelming, especially if you don't have the resources to fight that many fires. Um, I have some colleagues that are still working in Alberta, and it seems like they don't really have the resources that they need, but um, yeah, it's a tough one for sure. Yeah. Tell me a bit about that, because um, I think there's been a new, there's been scrutiny, not much right now. I think everyone wants to see uh, Alberta get through this crisis phase uh, but hopefully when this is done there'll be there'll be some some introspection and uh, some review of whether or not uh, you know the whole system was prepared for this what has happened in Alberta since the time you were there and even in the in the last years you were there what's happened uh, with with firefighting and preparedness in terms of being able to handle situations such as these uh, the last few years like my last year there was 2018 and I've led uh, over 100 people on my cruise, and since that time, I think only one person has stayed in Alberta wildfire. Um, wow. The reasons why why they left is because the season's been cutting shorter. Um, 
they don't uh, have any pension, no benefits, no sick days, and it's tough to make that livelihood sustainable for them. So the turnover and having rookies all the time is is definitely a hard challenge that some of my friends that are still there are dealing with. So in other words, you, you'll have firefighters out on the front lines now who may have not seen anything like this before. Uh, and, and that, I mean, no, no, they're doing what they can, clearly. Uh, but that kind of turnover can't be a good thing. No, it's always difficult because you need to prepare and you need to train for the upcoming fire season. And when you're getting new people all the time, you have to spend that time training instead of um, maybe trying training the higher level things you get with experienced people. And also with the fire season being shorter than it used to and having these people later in the season, you don't get that time to prepare them and train them properly coming fresh out of college or into a new job role. And that is something that has been a challenge for the people working in that environment. Maybe uh, for for listeners, we could take a step back and and a reminder of how, who it is, uh, how this is structured. I mean, these are not full-time positions, right? You're, you're, how, how is wildfire prevention and wildfire fighting? How, how is, how does it work in a place like Alberta? Uh, Well, there is full-time staff that work all year round, um, but they are mostly people that work in more of a management role and more of an operations but the people that are usually the boots are on the ground are seasonal employees that used to get hired from March 1st to October 31st. And you do a two-week training program. A lot of times it's uh, young men and women coming out of college and they prepare for the season. And if we're lucky enough, they come back the next year and we get some experience. But yeah, most of it is uh, seasonal firefighters that work to four, eight months a year. So it used to be March 1st to October 31st. What has changed? Um, well, now... It seems to be based on whether the fire season is active or not. And some of my colleagues that still work there, uh, they, they, they're not exactly sure when their start dates are going to be, and a lot of them are waiting for that phone call. But it used to be March 1st guaranteed. Now a lot of them are starting end of, end of April. And we know that the fire season seems, at least what's another reminder this year, seems to have uh, lengthened. And so we have a longer fire season but those responsible for preventing and fighting, not all, but, but those on the front lines, theirs, their work years is, is getting shorter, which seems like a, like, like a hell of a contradiction. It is. Um, firefighting and the weather, um, it's not always going to be hot every year. So the last couple of years, it has been a little bit slower. So sometimes you can forget that it can be busy. And it just becomes a challenge for those um, to maybe see beyond year to year. But if you we have the data set, we can see that these fires are happening at quicker intervals. But if you don't have that every year, then maybe sometimes that gets lost with the people that are making these decisions. Did you ever have any insight into why that was being done? Was it purely a cost-cutting thing? I never got into the policy or to the management, but yeah, it, it was always hard for me to say. Like, there was never um, somebody who took that responsibility to say, this is why we're doing this. It just seemed that at the end of the year and when the winter times come and you're looking forward to the next season, it seemed to change from year to year depending on um, how the government was running at the time. Right. And and as you put it, um, though, I mean, clearly you can't, if you are if you need to make a living, you're not going to wait around waiting for the phone to ring if something better or something similar comes up elsewhere. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I stayed in it for so long, not because of um, financial reasons. Um, I stayed in because it was my life's calling and I, and I liked the job. But after a while, I couldn't 
stay with it because I wasn't really getting fiscally uh, compensated for what I was doing. And I was also working injured all the time. I didn't have sick days or anything like that. So I had to go to a place where I could have a livelihood. So you left. I mean, you, you were one of the integral parts of, of, of these first small teams, these teams of 20, the, the memoir you wrote back uh, about uh, there was events 10 years ago. But when people like you start to leave, that, that must be an, must start sounding alarm bells for those who are in charge of all this. Uh, you would think so, but I didn't even get a goodbye. They just, I didn't even get a good luck. I just said I wasn't going to come back next year, and I applied for BC Wildfire and moved on with my life. Yeah. When you look back at what's happening now then, I mean, did it come as a surprise that, uh, I mean, we, we don't really know. I guess we're going to find out afterwards. Once these fires happen, and I'm trying to think back to both Slave Lake and uh, what happened in Fort Mac, there must be a review of, of the response and the preparedness after the fact to see if, uh, if these things could have been handled better. I know there's already been criticism that early on there were groups that could have gone in. I think it was the repel groups and so on that have been cut that could have maybe made a difference, some difference earlier on in this wildfire season in Alberta that weren't available. Um, yeah, after the Slave Lake fire happened, it was called the Flat Top After Action Review. And out of that, there were several recommendations, and one of them was to keep the fire season longer and also to, to hire 10 full-time ranger staff across the province as well as starting the Unicoo programs. But last year, those 10 positions were cut, and some of my colleagues that had those jobs lost their full-time positions and had to reapply for seasonal positions that maybe only last for four or five months a year. So for them, especially when they get a little bit older, that's not manageable for the lifestyle that they want so they had to leave would it be fair to say and this is and, and you know i don't want to put too, too i don't want to put words in your mouth but would it be fair to say you went from having a professionally set team to sort of relying on on a pickup league to some extent uh, i mean that, that sounds pretty harsh but it sounds like it was there was a real core of professionalism within the system before and that that core has been at least on the front lines that that core has been lost a little bit in the last last few years yeah, there, there's a, a period of time between 2013 and 2016 where I felt that I had a very experienced crew and the things that we were able to do because we were working together and learning, um, we were able to do a lot together as a team. But as um, the seasons got shorter, turnover, turnovers got higher, and then I was getting, you know, at least half my crew were, were rookies again, and you have to start from the foundation all over again. It's, it's difficult to do that year after year. Um, I guess there's some concern in BC these days too. We're having going to have a very hot weekend. There are fires burning in this province as well already. So, I mean, we've uh, all eyes have been on Alberta so far, but BC is uh, seeing a bit of a a bit of a tough early, a bit of a tough May as well. Uh, yeah, I live on the the west coast now, and it's definitely hotter than it's been for a while. So, the trend kind of continues everywhere you go. So, there's some there's some alarm bells going off here that we need to get ready for the same thing that's happening in Alberta. How much has it evolved over the last decade? I mean, since you did, since you fought in Slave Lake and so on. I mean, we talked about some of the budget cuts in Alberta and the impact that's had, that that's had. But how much more sophisticated has has wildland firefighting gotten since you started? Oh well, when I started in twenty uh, or in two thousands, technology was a lot different. I remember thinking how strange that'd be to go to a fire and be able to talk to my supervisor over the phone or to send him pictures of what's happening right. in real time, so you can keep up. With technology but as far as um, the resources that are given you know there's a lot of cutting cutting edge technology that's that's developed all the time like lidar and things like that so that helps what's it like to be on the um 
What's it like to be on the front lines then of these things? I don't think most of us, I think we see a lot of it on uh, in pictures and, you know, wildfire, wildfires can be absolutely, um, well, both devastating looking, but also dramatically kind of beautiful in their own awful way. What's it like to actually be on the front lines of one? It's, definitely an experience that's very rare and it's very hard to portray um, if you haven't experienced that yourself but it could be a mix of a rush it could be a mix of fear it could be a mix of adrenaline um, but when it comes down to it the reason why most people do it is because they're selfless people and they want to help others out yeah i mean when you look at, at some of the challenges compared to to firefighting you know sort of structure firefighting uh you're always caught i mean last week i remember talking about the as the alberta wildfires were first sort of really uh, getting much stronger it was just the way that they can shift so quickly on you and catch people off guard yeah there's such large scale events like right now i work for a city fire department i got out of wildfire for a change of pace and uh it's definitely a lot different in his job like i used to compare that I used to have to be more like a horse. I used to have to work 16 hours a day for weeks at a time to these fires that seemed impossible to go out. And now it's more like being a barrier on these events that last maybe an hour. So you have to have your strengths in different ways, but wildfire mm-hmm. is a type of job I've never had before in my life. And having to do these things for weeks at a time is, is very challenging for an individual. Any thoughts for those uh, in Alberta right now? I mean, you must've been seeing, you must've seen the pictures, you know, what kind of challenge it is. Yeah, they're they're definitely in for a little bit of a tough go for the next few weeks. Um, I fought fires for months at a time, and then you think it's never going to stop. And then the rain comes, so a lot of it's going to be dependent on the weather. So we do have a lot of very experienced people and, and confident people that are helping, uh, you know, my friends and family that still live in Alberta. But we definitely have to hope for the cooler the weather to help them out. I guess one of the misconceptions amongst the population often and amongst journalists, I guess, too, is that uh, once the flames are gone, the danger is not exactly past, right? I mean, there's, there's that aspect of it where we seem to think like, like other when the fire's out, it out, it's out. But with wildfires, it, that's not quite the case. Yeah, like fire is a, a tricky animal to extinguish and it likes to do what it wants to do and it likes to hide in the ground and it likes to hide in place and it can survive over the winter and then restart the next year. So you need those crews that are willing to go to these fires after they think that it's out, but we have to go through every foot of the forest and check it to make sure that these things aren't going to restart. That's not just help with ground crews, that's help with infrared and, and helicopter crews and, and lookouts and things like that. But yeah, it's, it's a job that never stops until the season's done. Yeah, it can be tough for people who have been evacuated as well because they see the threat gone. They see with their own eyes that the threat seems to be over, and yet they're not allowed to go home yet. Yeah, because until the weather shifts and until there's that level of safety, it's tough to be able to give these people a certain sense of um, certainty that it's not going to restart until the crews have done what they need to do to make sure that it's out. Well, Harold Larson, thanks for your, uh, your perspective on this. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate the time. Binance, the largest cryptocurrency exchange in the world, says it is pulling out of the Canadian market. They made that announcement on Twitter this afternoon. Uh, The tweet said, unfortunately, today we are announcing that Binance will be joining other prominent crypto businesses 
and proactively withdrawing from the Canadian marketplace. Proactively, nice use of that word. There's an awful word for you, proactive. I mean, if there's a corporate word that should never be used, it's proactive. But there it is. Uh, Binance pointed to new guidance related to stable coins and investor limits provided to crypto exchanges uh, as making the market, quote, untenable. Now, one of the reasons that this is, this is curious for our audience, and we'll get into what it means, is that the founder of Binance, uh, founder and CEO, Chengpeng Zhao, uh, who goes by CZ, is actually Canadian. He's Canadian. So uh, the biggest uh, crypto ex- exchange, currency, cryptocurrency exchange in the world founded by a Canadian, now will no longer be doing business in Canada. So what does that mean and how did it happen? Uh, to help us understand is Henry Kim, Associate Professor of Operations Management and Information Systems and Co-Director of the Blockchain Lab at York University in Toronto. Henry, thank you. And sorry about the team tonight. Another loss for the Leafs. Ah, uh, well, I was just watching it. You know what? My wife is from Edmonton, so I'm rooting for oh. the Oilers now. Oh, good. So you, you get a bit of so that this was a good year for the for the household, hockey wise at least. It would have been. It could have been. <laughs> could it could have been. Well, well, the Oilers are still alive, so I guess you'll have to put away the red, the blue and white, and pull out the orange and blue, and keep on cheering. Yeah, I will do. Tell me a bit about this because I think you know for a lot of listeners, uh, crypto could be a bit of a, a bit of a you know bit of an opaque zone. Uh, I think people might remember when FTX collapsed and so forth. But tell me a bit about what Binance is and its connections to Canada. So as you said, uh, CZ, who's called uh, in the crypto community, is is from Canada. Went to did his degree at McGill. Uh, but Binance is by far, especially with the crash of FTX, uh, the largest uh, what's called crypto exchange. This is the means by which regular folks can trade their regular money for cryptos. Um, so they run the largest uh, uh, crypto exchange in the world. Uh, but they've always historically been. Um, more they, they've historically not really been great with very regulated environments so for instance they've never had a foothold in the united states um and ontario i've actually was a binance customer i haven't been able to use binance since the end of 2021 so the thing with binance is that part of the reason why they're big um is that they understand the lay of the land and they also understand that if it becomes too onerous for them to be in some place and canada uh, it's quite small, as they said in their announcement, then it doesn't make sense for them to be there. So, it, you know, they left Ontario in 2022. Uh, it was a matter of time they left the rest of the province. So this actually comes as no surprise at all. What is the business model for something like Binance? Again, I think a lot of people don't quite understand how crypto exchanges work. So how do they make money? Uh, Binance makes money a, a lot of different ways, but charging fees. Uh, this is the other thing, too. In, in many other unregulated environments, Binance runs not just owning cryptos, but derivatives or more complicated financial instruments. So they make pretty good money on that. But in Canada, really all they were doing was charging fees on for people to buy and sell cryptocurrencies. Uh, the interesting thing about Binance was by far was the cheapest place by a long shot. So if you are – the sad thing about Binance leaving is that they were by far – the best, the cheapest platform, bar none, which is I was sad to see Binance leave Ontario. So that's too bad. There's some other good places. Um, there, Alberta has, for instance, a pretty good one or two places, uh, crypto exchanges. But the sad thing for, for Canadians is that they lose the most cost-effective solution and also the most largest uh, place and also the place where you could actually have a lot of different financial instruments that you could trade. 
Right. And, and with FTX gone and now Binance gone from Canada, that certainly limits. I mean, if you're in the in, in the uh, that that certainly limits options for Canadians. No, it doesn't actually. There's a lot of options for Canadians. There's something right. called Coinbase, which by de facto becomes the largest. There's many others. There's numerous, numerous others. Well, simple, for instance. Um, actually, it's not cost-effective, but that's an option because it allows people to actually just have regular investments and regular cash accounts also to own crypto. So, yeah, I was reading about Kraken and Gemini. Others were coming out today yeah. to say, of course, we're still here. I guess I meant for yeah. the big ones. The, the, the two major players are gone on the Canadian landscape, at least, or the biggest players. Well, Coinbase is still here. Coinbase, is, uh, Coinbase actually, I think even before Binance, was still the largest in Canada. So they right. haven't left. So I was try, trying to make sense. I mean, I, I was reading different articles this afternoon about why they've up and left. And uh, I guess a lot of the, the comments were sort of, if you don't want to play by the rules, then you get out of the game, right? So what kind of regulatory environment um, do we now have that would, that would cause a company like Binance to decide, you know what, this isn't worth it? Yeah, so what's really happened is that Canada is sort of by de facto going the U.S. model. U.S., for instance, is making it very difficult for crypto companies and they're sort of putting almost like uh, making regulations on the fly. Uh, Europe has actually got a different regime. Uh, and, uh, and rather than following the European model, it appears that Canada is sort of following the, the U.S. model, which is just, you know, and that's actually not a bad thing, right? Because, again, one of the nice things to consider is that FTX was never in Canada. Right? That people, I don't yes. know if people realize that. So that was because we have mm-hmm. some pretty good regulations um, uh, and pretty hard ones at FTX was unwilling to need. Uh, and the same thing, Binance was just finds it a little bit too to owners to be in here. So I don't actually think Canadians are really that worse off. I mean, you lose them. The, the sad thing is you lose the most cost-effective, by far the best platform. But if you're just a regular trader of crypto, uh, who you hold it for the most part, traded here and there, there are plenty of different options. So you don't lose out anything there. When it comes to the regulations, though, I mean, how Canada, I mean, I think the crash of FTX put really lit a fire. I, mean, I know, I know regulate, regulatory, at least after trying to re- better regulate, this space was already in motion before the collapse of FTX. But I think the collapse of FTX certainly seems to have lit, lit quite the fire under uh, regulators in America and, and no doubt here as well. So is it moving quickly? You said it was sort of being done by the seat of their pants. Are they, are, do, they, do they know what's up or has it been quite, uh, has it been quite scattered so far? Canada has been pretty good, reasonable. I think one of the considerations, as I said before, is that Ontario Security Commission felt that Binance uh, wasn't fully compliant, so they kicked them out in 2020, at the end of 2021. So really, all the rest of Ontario, is, the rest of Canada is just following Ontario's lead about a year and a half later, right? So right. In, in that sense, I don't actually think, I mean, let me put it another way. Binance was going to lead Canada at some point in time. I, I'm, whether, whether FTX happened or not, because Ontario, you know, uh, they were they were excluded from Ontario. So eventually, maybe Alberta is a little bit different, but for the most part, eventually writing on the wall was that they were going to eventually uh, leave. Because you know, yeah, Ontario is a huge part of the market anyway, right? Yeah, if you, if you can't trade in Ontario, uh, I realize they ran afoul of the Ontario Securities Commission a while back. If you can't trade in Ontario, yeah. then your Canadian business model might be a little broken, right? Yeah, and, and it really is not that important. I think uh, for I guess it's a tiny market relative to everything else. I mean, they do... Asia is huge. Uh, and keep in mind, Binance is even in the United States. So really, their core is Asia, uh, really primarily Asia and maybe Europe. And they're just, you know, they, they, I mean, they didn't mind being in Canada, but honestly, I don't think they lose that much about being in Canada either. 
Did he lose? I guess his part. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I, 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 I guess part of it is that Binance has has you see the name more often here because although I don't know a lot of a lot of people know who uh, Chung Peng Zhao or CZ is, but he's Canadian. So and he's the head of this massive uh, this massive exchange. So I suppose it was just his success and his wealth that sort of put Binance on the radar here. So there's a, a there's a there's a little more there's more questions about why they would pack up and leave this way. I, I guess. Business-wise, it makes complete sense, and I suppose that there's no reason for 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 CZ to hang out in Canada just because he's from here. If the company can't do really do business here and make money, um, but I suppose that's the link. It's because the CEO and founder is Canadian. It is, but you know, it, it's good, uh, and that's. But CZ has CZ doesn't isn't even in China. He actually finds uh, he right. finds the most um, the most regulatory friendly place to live. So he actually will go out and say, yeah, it's kind of like, where's Waldo? CZ isn't yeah. actually tethered to one particular place. So he lives wherever it's convenient, honestly. Right. There was a bit, there was a bit of a dig in that, uh, in that tweet as well that talked about joining other big, prominent crypto businesses in leaving. What was meant by that? Are others also on their way out the door or have we already seen that? Um. Not really. I, I think yeah, it's really it should... more of a dig about the United States. Right, it's sort right. of, um, uh, it's really the the U.S. with uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission. They've really been going after um, as crypto companies, like uh, right. not just Binance, but but uh, but like Coinbase. So it really is kind of a dig, both a, a combined dig at Canada, but also the United States. So you know, last I I paid close attention to this. I mean, this is probably late last year. Bitcoin had plunged. Uh, FTX was a disaster. You know, Sam Bankman-Fried was being, you know, uh, perp-walked. And what's happened since? I mean, has there been a recovery at all? What's the, what's the state of the crypto business these days? Yeah, so there's been actually a significant recovery uh, from uh, the FTX Times in November. It is, it actually, for at one point, uh, doubled, and it's still up about 80% uh, since then. Uh, what has actually happened, uh, as you saw, like the bank crises, crisis in the United right. States, is that this narrative of uh, Bitcoin as um, sort of a, uh, a hedge against uh, excesses of the banking system? That narrative has been has resurfaced. Ah. So, yeah, because there was a few different, it was sort of a hedge against, at one point it was the hedge against inflation. We know that didn't work out so well. But, yeah, I imagine once people started, started to wonder about this, the state of, you know, small and medium-sized banks across the U.S. with Silicon Valley Bank and so on, that those who might be a little worried about uh, the integrity of the financial system may have turned back to, to, uh, to crypto pretty quickly. Exactly. Except I think one of the things I want to impress upon your listeners is that Crypto truly is narrative driven, like truly, truly, truly is narrative driven. But the interesting about that narrative as an inflation hedge is that it's not exactly it hasn't been around long enough for it to be truly borne out. So mm. at some point last year, people said, oh, it's clearly not an inflation hedge because it was going down as U.S. inflation was going up. And now they're saying it's an inflation hedge. Uh, but what it really is, is I'll, I'll tell you what it actually is, is that. Uh, where, as long as central banks and the Canadian central bank or United central banks are uh, pumping, putting money, liquidity in, putting money in and keeping the interest rates low uh, and there is a lot of money sloshing around, there will always be money finding a risky asset like crypto. 
So right. that's the, so the, I'm not actually that's not necessarily a value judgment. What I'm simply saying is that if you are going to be in crypto, I think you have to actually have an understanding of the macroeconomic environment. Yeah, it, it's spitting truth is what it is. You're right. I mean, it's one of those things. I mean, I've seen it called everything from like, you know, an elaborate Ponzi scheme to to sort of the future. Right? And obviously, lots of people talk about blockchain technologies, I'm sure you can point out, as really having an incredible future, maybe just not in this incarnation, right? We're sort of feeling our way through the, how all this is going to work. Exactly. And that might take a while. Um, but uh, And then that's still to, to develop. But I think... Bitcoin blockchain is 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 uh, promising, and I think you know we'll find different use cases for it. Bitcoin is actually, I think, a different beast altogether. Bitcoin is really just you you hold Bitcoin for the same reason you hold gold. And yeah. Honestly, that and so that irrespective of whatever happens with blockchain technology. Henry Kim, thanks so much for uh, for bringing us up to date on on, on the impact of Binance uh, calling Canada quits. <laughs> Have you seen this movie? It's called The Glass Castle. Have a look. Or have a listen. Let's just go back and talk about this. Dad, why do you think all of us ran away from you? We were drowning. I still don't understand why you followed us here. We wanted to be a family again. We were never a family, Mom. We were a nightmare. Your mom and I did everything we could for you, okay? We looked after you. Bullshit. It was a happy family. Bullshit. We did it. We took care of each other because you were too drunk to. It was your job to protect us, and you didn't even try. That ain't true, okay? You got some kind of weird true. revisionist history going on. You were a Dad, happy kid. Stop And talking. they were happy kids. Stop We looked talking. after you, and that's Stop wrong. talking! You'll recognize Woody Harrelson in there. Uh, Brie Larson is playing Jeanette Walls. Naomi Watts uh, and Woody Harrelson play her parents. That's an excerpt from a 2017 movie called The Glass Castle. Uh, Walls had left behind a childhood of poverty to become a successful journalist in New York, and the movie was based on a memoir she wrote of the same name, The Glass Castle, back in 2005. Get this. It was such a success that it spent 261 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. 261 weeks. It sold 6 million copies. Talk about instant success. I mean, she'd been a journalist and a gossip columnist for a long time, but the book was just huge. There have been other books since, including Half Broke Horses in 2009 and The Silver Star in 2013. And now she's back with a new novel called Hang the Moon, set in Virginia during Prohibition. That's the Prohibition song earlier. It's the story of a character named Sally Kincaid, the rebellious daughter of the richest man in town. She ends up being ostracized for a while. She comes back. She wants to take over. And uh, the synopsis states, most folks thought Sally Kincaid was a nobody who would amount to nothing. Sally had other plans. She navigates the factions in her family, the divides in her community during Prohibition, of course, and comes into her own as a bold bootlegger. What's really interesting about this book is that it explores topics that we haven't really looked at much, such as women during Prohibition and life during that time in more rural and remote parts of the U.S., far from you know Chicago or the speakeasies of New York and so on. Uh, Jeanette Walls joins me now. Congratulations. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Great to be here. I, I know that this is fiction, but you you know, you know, really made your name in, uh, in nonfiction, writing essentially as you're a journalist. Uh, what, tell me a bit about your background. You have a, an incredible story from, from, from coming from the Appalachians to New York. 
Yeah, you know, I was a journalist for a long time. I, I wanted to be a journalist, a reporter since I was around 13 years old. And at one point, I was a, a celebrity journalist. I was that yeah. bonehead you see on television sticking my microphone into celebrities' faces, asking them who designed their outfits. And I was heading to a fabulous party one day, and I glanced out the window, and I saw a homeless woman rooting through the garbage, and I realized it was my mom. Uh-huh. And I got together with a couple of day- days later. I said, Ma, what the heck am I supposed to tell people when they ask me about you? And she said, tell them the truth. And I thought I could never do that. It's too weird. Nobody would get it. At the same time, it was something I felt I had to do. So I sat down and I wrote a memoir called The Glass Castle. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was going to be the end of me, that I would lose all my friends and would lose my job. And I'm such an idiot. It's the best thing that ever happened to me. I didn't get fired from my job, but I returned to the red carpet and a very well-known woman asked me, would you please turn off your microphone? I'd like to say something to you in private. And she thanked me for my story. She said, my father's also an alcoholic and your story really helped me understand him. So I thought, I don't want to do this anymore. And I became um, a full-time book writer. Right. I I mean, The Glass Castle was an incredibly successful and very, I think, impactful book. What's it been like to go from, I mean, because, you know, I've, I've been a journalist for a long time. I've never been able to write a line of fiction ever. And I was curious to know how you made the transition. You must have had stories to tell and books to tell. Um, How difficult was it to shift from fact to, to fiction? Okay, I'm so interested that you would ask that question because that is exactly what I would tell myself. I cannot write fiction. I am incapable of making anything up. Um, After The Glass Castle came out, I wrote two other books that I labeled as fiction because I had to fill in little gaps and didn't know certain things. But they were basically based on things that I knew and people that I knew. And and in touring on behalf of The Glass Castle, I would say that almost mantra-like, I have no imagination. I can't make things up. And it was a reader who said, ma'am, forgive me. I think you have a fabulous imagination, but you're afraid right. of your own creativity. Oh, wow. And it kind of gobsmacked me, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, and I thought, is this person onto something? One of the reasons I love talking to readers is they're smarter than I am. But I still didn't I, I still didn't quite know what to do with that. And then what happened is when I was on the set of The Glass Castle, the movie, watching the various actors, but particularly Woody Harrelson, inhabiting the character of my father, this man he'd never met, and he asked really smart questions about dad. What did he do with his eyes when he talked to you? What did he do with his hands when he talked to you? Wow. He really wanted to get the walk. And watching him become my father, this drunk, crazy man, without resorting to the stereotypes, without in any way passing judgment. The first time I saw Woody Harrelson in character, I burst into tears. And I, I thought a whole lot about what it was that Woody and the other actors on the set of The Glass Castle did. And I've come to believe that fiction writing is an act of empathy. Right. It's it's inhabiting these characters who we've never met, who who don't exist, but breathing life into them in the same way that these actors did with the members of my family. And I think that most fiction, at least the kind of fiction I'm drawn to, is deeply rooted in reality. So I researched the bejesus out of Hang the Moon. Um, yes. It's it's set a hundred years ago, but um, I felt it was just very important be, for me to understand the mindset, the technology, but mostly important, mostly like 
what was it like to be alive 100 years ago? What was it like to live in a world in which, you know, because it's set not only 100 years ago, but it's in, in Virginia with moonshiners. And these people had been making whiskey illegally for years. Um, and all of a sudden, there was a federal law against it. And they right. continued making it. So these were people who thought of themselves as good law-abiding people. All of a sudden, they're being shot at uh, by federal agents. What was that like? And so I, I, I will never be an actor like Woody Harrelson, but my my goal was to try to to get inside the head of a people who lived 100 years ago. So my friend, I think that even though you think of yourself as maybe somebody who's never written a line of fiction, I think that what you do, what, what I did in observing and trying to understand, you're a storyteller. And that's what it is. And sometimes these stories, we we don't necessarily have to experience them to understand them. And that's what fiction is. It's sort of like, I'm going to create a world that feels real. And some of it will come from research and from from pouring through the archives. I mean, there were not a whole lot of books written about the people I was writing about. The, no. um, the Most of what we know about prohibition it's it's from urban setting we have the, the g-men and the you know and the gangsters yeah. but but we the hill folk are reduced to these stereotypes of you know snuffy smith from hooten holler and everybody's <laughs> right. smoking corn cob pipes and that may be true but there's a deeper truth so i was trying to get to that to understand these people and 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 depict them as as believable and and real people and my greatest resource t- tended to be um court transcripts to, to capture the language, you know, I went to contemporary newspapers, small local newspapers, and uh, tried to figure out what what were people talking about, what were they thinking about. After prohibition, there was this great big um, investigation into what the heck went wrong, and there was a county in Virginia that was labeled as the wettest county in the world that produced more liquor than any comparable space in America, and so. There was a trial, and I used the court transcripts to, to, to get the mechanics of what happened, but also to capture the language. One, one gentleman was being in, investigated and said, why did you run when the investigators came? And he yeah. said, because I didn't want to get caught. You know, and it's just <laughs> this very simple yeah. language. And this, you know, so yeah. I, I, I had to resist the impulse to really lay it on. And I didn't want to make these people feel like other people. I didn't want to make them feel like a bunch of hillbillies. I wanted to take the readers and transport them to this world to know what it felt like to go through these things and to experience this 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 life in this world. It's really interesting because so few readers would know because there's so little information about what that world was really like. I mean, I was really fascinated by how much research you put into this and how hard it was to actually establish what it would be like for a young woman growing up during Prohibition in that era and sort of creating a heroine from her out of her um, and sort of following her struggles that you could have probably gotten away with doing less, but you did a ton. And I guess that's what shines through in the book. Well, thank you so much for saying that. There were so many times that I just, I was i was looking at Sally, the main character, and I was like, Sally this Kincaid. doesn't feel real. It doesn't feel right. And originally, for example, she was a real potty mouth, and she just you know, spewed these curse words. And I, I'm going to apologize to your listeners in advance, but her go-to word was, her go-to curse word was uh, dumbass, which right. is kind of my go-to curse word. And she kept on talking about this dumbass law. Yeah. But then I found this amazing resource, uh, Green's Dictionary on Slang, which tells you in various curse words words uh, entered the lexicon and where and dumbass was a mid-century curse word okay. and it broke my heart to take all my dumbasses out but once i did it felt more authentic 
right. don't think that she would have been a tough talking. She felt a little bit like a gun mole. And it was that mid-century, you know, it was a word I'd gotten from my father. It was a GI curse word. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for that compliment because I think that it was less for me about larding the book with research and more about making sure that nothing got in that felt inauthentic. Jeanette, I was reading something you said that was really interesting about why you thought prohibition would be such an interesting time to explore a woman's story and that they hadn't been told. And here we are. Uh, why was that? Well, there were a number of reasons I was drawn to prohibition. I first became aware of prohibition when I was around seven or eight years old and I was sitting at the kitchen table and there was a vase on the table, a flower vase. It had actually been a whiskey bottle that had been repurposed and I turned it around and it said, um, federal law forbids sale or reuse of this bottle. And I said, Ma, Ma, we got to throw out the flowers. And she said, what are you talking about? And I said, we're breaking the law. And she said, what are you, what are you talking about? So I showed her and she said, oh, well, that's a stupid law. You can ignore that. And I thought, well, what are you talking about? You know, this is an easy We're all the time breaking the law. This one's easy. We can throw out the flowers. And she explained to me about prohibition. And my father was a raging alcoholic. So I thought I wanted to live during this wondrous right. time where, where nobody was allowed to drink. And she said it was, it was a disaster. She said it completely backfired. Not only did uh, drinking increase, but so did crime. And I thought she didn't know what she was talking about, but of course she did. And I, it's, it's a fascinating period to me, not just because of prohibition, but be because America was going through such an up upheaval. It was really kind of coming of age after the first world war uh, with uh, uh, the boys coming back from the war with the number of immigrants coming in, America was redefining who and what it was. Also the technology was so massively changing the world cars, especially, I think it's hard for us to imagine the difference that cars made in people's lives and electricity as somebody who grew up largely without electricity, I will never take for granted the miracle of just switching on a light and having, having daytime come into your house. So I wanted to take this story of a woman coming of age and give it the backdrop of a country coming of age because, you know, Sally's trying to figure out where she fits in this crazy family that she had so admired and always thought her father was perfect. At the same time, America was kind of going through a reckoning. I, when we think of the twenties, at least I had thought of this golden era with jazz and everybody's reading Gatsby yeah, and doing the Charleston, yeah. but it was, it was a dark period too. You know, the, the Ku Klux Klan was at its height in America, um, a birth of a nation, was the most popular movie, which glorified the Ku Klux Klan. And, and there was a, a very powerful nativist movement. The world was changing so much. And with change comes fear. And with that fear comes a pushback. And that's what prohibition was. It was trying to take America back to some sort of imaginary, uh, wonderful, easier, simpler time when people behave themselves. So I thought it was a fascinating period to look at if I could be clear and honest about what was really going on. And and a, a very a very timely because it feels yeah. like a hundred years later uh, yeah. we're experiencing some of the same convulsions, right? Absolutely, I've heard it said history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And there were so many things that I kept Simply on coming not. across, like, oh my gosh, why why do we keep on having to learn these lessons? Why do we have to keep on figuring out that? that you can't, that there are certain things you can't pass a law against. You know, of course we need laws to make people behave and you can't kill people. And there, there has to be certain controls on, on behavior, but 
it's you know in the prohibition is in, in America we're going through this big book banning thing right now, mm-hmm. and you know I and I I kind of get it. The book banner is a little bit like the prohibitionist. Let's take these bad things out of the world and and protect our children. But the thing is, the you know the the better thing is to just control and open and discuss these things rather than pretending that these things don't exist because they will find their way into our world. Let's just be grownups about it all. As, as you discovered and, and exemplified with your, with, with your memoir. I mean, Thank sometimes you. the yeah. truth, the truth is the best, is the best remedy. Oh, you know, um, a very wise man once said to me, secrets are a little bit like vampires. They suck the life out of you, but they can exist only in the darkness. Once they're exposed to light, there's a moment of horror, but then they lose their power over you. And I've just found that to be so true. And among uh, so many amazing things have happened as a result of my having told the story, but maybe the most beautiful is the number of people who've come up to me and said, your story gave me the courage to tell the truth about my story. And fear is contagious and hatred is is contagious but so are truth telling and compassion and and that's why i love doing what i do and Jeanette Wallace, congratulations on yet another it's already a success so congratulations on thank on you. the latest and uh, yeah hang the moon it's called uh, i re- highly recommend it thank you so much real pleasure speaking with you